Welcome back to the Future of Life Institute podcast. I'm Lucas Perry, and I work on AI risk and nuclear weapons risk related projects at FLI. Today, we are kicking off a new series where we will be having conversations with technical and non-technical researchers focused on AI safety and the value alignment problem. Broadly, we will focus on the interdisciplinary nature of the project of eventually creating value-aligned AI, where what value-aligned exactly entails is an open question that is part of the conversation. In general, this series covers the social, political, ethical, and technical issues and questions surrounding the creation of beneficial AI. We'll be speaking with experts from a large variety of domains and hope that you'll join in the conversations. If this seems interesting to you, make sure to follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to us on YouTube for more similar content. Today, we'll be speaking with Dylan hadfield Manel. Dylan is a fifth-year PhD student at UC Berkeley, advised by Anka Dragan, Peter Abiel, and Stuart Russell. His research focuses on the value alignment problem in artificial intelligence. And with that, I give you Dylan. Hey, Dylan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I guess we can start off. You can tell me a little bit more about your work over the past years. Like, how have your interests and projects evolved, and how has that led you to where you are today? Well, uh, I started off towards the end of undergrad and the beginning of my PhD working in robotics and hierarchical robotics. Uh, towards the end of my first year, my advisor came back uh, from a sabbatical and uh, started talking about value alignment problem and sort of existential risk issues related to AI. Uh, at that point, I started thinking about questions about misaligned objectives, value alignment, and generally how we get the correct preferences and objectives into AI systems. Uh, and about a year after that, I sort of decided to make this my central research focus. And then for the past three years, it's been most of what I've been thinking about. Cool. So it seems like you sort of had like an original path where you were working on practical robotics and then you sort of shifted more so into, into value alignment, AI safety efforts. Uh, yep, that's right. Before we go ahead and jump into your specific work, it'd be great if we could go ahead and define what inverse reinforcement learning exactly is. So for me, it seems that inverse reinforcement learning, at least from the view, I guess, of technical AI safety researchers, is it's viewed as an empirical means of conquering descriptive ethics whereby like, we're able to give a clear descriptive account of what any given agent's preferences and values are at any given time is. Is, is that a fair characterization? That's sort of one way to characterize it. Another way would to, to think about it, which, which is, is a useful perspective for me sometimes, is to think of inverse reinforcement learning as uh, a way of doing behavior modeling uh, that has certain types of generalization properties. So anytime you're, you're learning in any machine learning context, uh, there's always going to be a bias that controls how you generalize to new information. And inverse reinforcement learning and preference learning, to some extent, is a bias in behavior modeling which is to say that we should model this agent as accomplishing a goal, as satisfying a set of preferences. And that leads to certain types of generalization properties in new environments. So, so for me, it's, it's inverse reinforcement learning is building in this agent-based assumption into behavior modeling. 
So given that, I'd like to dive more into like the sorts of specific work that you're working on and go into like some summaries of like your findings and your sorts of research that you've been up to. So given this interest that you've been developing in, in value alignment and like human preference aggregation and AI systems learning human preferences, uh, what are the main approaches that you've been working on? So I think the first thing that really Stuart Russell and I started thinking about was trying to understand uh, sort of theoretically what is a reasonable goal to shoot for and what does it mean to have to do a good job of value alignment. Um, to us, it, it feels like issues with misspecified objectives, at least in some ways, are a bug in the theory. All of the math around artificial intelligence, uh, for example, uh, Markov decision processes, which is the kind of central mathematical model we use for decision making over time, uh, starts with an exogenously defined objective or reward function. And we think that mathematically that was a fine thing to do in order to make progress. But it's an assumption that really has put blinders on the field about the importance of getting the right objective down. And so I think the first thing that we sought to try to do was to understand what is a, a system or a setup for AI that does the right thing in theory, at least. Um, what's something that if we were able to, to implement this, that we think would actually, you know, could actually work in the real world with people. And it was that kind of thinking that led us to propose cooperative inverse reinforcement learning, uh, which was our attempt to formalize the interaction whereby you communicate an objective to the system. And the main thing that we focused on was including within the theory a representation of the fact that the true objective is unknown and unobserved and that it needs to be arrived at through observations from a person. And then we've been trying to investigate the theoretical implications of this modeling shift. So in the initial paper that we did, which was titled Cooperative Inverse Reinforcement Learning, what we looked at is how, how this formulation is actually different from a standard environment model in AI. And in particular, the way that it's different is that there's strategic interaction on the behalf of the person. So the way that you observe what you're supposed to be doing is intermediated by a person who may be trying to actually teach or trying to, to communicate appropriately. And what we showed is that modeling this communication, this communicative component can actually be hugely important and lead to much faster learning behavior. In our subsequent work, what we've looked at is, is taking this formal model and theory and trying to apply it to different situations. And there are kind of two, two really important pieces of work that I liked here that we did. One was to take that theory and use it to explicitly analyze a, a simple model of an existential risk setting. This was a paper titled The Off-Switch Game that we published at Ichikai last summer. And what it was was working through a formal model of a corrigibility problem within a CIRL framework. And it shows the utility of 
constructing this type of game in the sense that we get some interesting predictions and results. So the first one we get is that there are some, in, some nice, simple, necessary conditions uh, for the system to want to let the person turn it off, which is that the robot, the AI system, needs to have uncertainty about its true objective, which is to say that it needs to have within its belief the possibility it might be wrong. And then all it needs to do is believe that the person it's interacting with is a perfectly rational individual. If that's true, you get a guarantee that this robot always lets the person switch it off. Now, that's good because it, in my mind, it's an example of a place where, the, at least in theory, it solves the problem. This gives us a way that, that theoretically we could build corrigible systems. Now, it's still making a very, very strong assumption, which is that it's okay to model the human as being uh, optimal or rational. And I think if you look at real people, that's just not a fair assumption to make for a whole host of reasons. And so the next thing we did in that paper is we looked at this model and what we realized is that adding in a small amount of irrationality breaks this requirement. It means that some things might actually go wrong. And so the final thing we did in the paper was to look at uh, the consequences of either overestimating or underestimating human rationality. And the argument that we made is sort of there's a trade-off between assuming that the person is more rational, lets you get more information from their behavior, thus learn more and in principle help them more. Uh, but if you assume that they're too rational, then this actually can lead to quite bad behavior. And so there's a, a sweet spot that you sort of want to aim for, which is to maybe uh, try to underestimate how rational people are, uh, but you obviously don't want to get it totally wrong. Uh, we followed up on that idea in a paper uh, with Smith Amelia as the first author, that was titled, Should Robots Be Obedient? And that tried to get a little bit more at this trade-off between maintaining control over a system and the amount of value that it can generate for you. Um, we sort of looked at the implication that the as robot systems interact with people over time, you expect them to learn more about what people want. And if you get very confident about what someone wants and you think they might be irrational, the math in the off switch paper predicts that you should try to take the take control away from them. So this means that if your system is learning over time, you expect that even if it is initially open to human control and oversight, it may choose to uh, it may lose that incentive over time. In fact, you can predict that it should lose that incentive over time. Uh, so in should robots be obedient, we modeled that property and we looked at some consequences of it. We do find that you get a basic confirmation of this uh, hypothesis, which is that systems that maintain human control and oversight have less value that they can achieve in theory. Um, but we also looked at what happens when you have the wrong model. So if the AI system has a prior that it cares about, uh, that the human cares about a small number of things in the world, let's say, um, 
then it it statistically gets overconfident in its estimates of what people care about and disobeys the person more often than it should. Uh, so arguably, the when we say we want to be able to turn the system off, it's it's less a statement about what we want to do in theory or the property of the sort of optimal robot behavior we want, and more a reflection of the idea that we sort of believe that under almost any uh, realistic situation, we're probably not going to be able to fully explain all of the relevant variables that we care about. So if you're giving your robot an objective to find over a subset of things you care about, you should actually be very focused on having it listen to you more so than just optimizing for its estimates of value. And I, I think that provides actually a, a pretty strong theoretical argument for why corrigibility is a desirable property in systems. Even though at least at face value, it should decrease the, the amount of utility those systems can generate for people. The final piece of work that I think I would talk about here is our NIPS paper from December, which was titled Inverse Reward Design. And that was sort of taking cooperative inverse reinforcement learning and pushing it in the other direction. So instead of using it to theoretically analyze uh, very, very powerful systems, we can also use it to try to build tools that are uh, more robust to mistakes that designers may make and start to build in uh, initial notions of value alignment and value alignment strategies into the current mechanisms we use to program AI systems. So what that work looked at was understanding the uncertainty that's inherent in an objective specification. So in the initial cooperative inverse reinforcement learning paper and the off switch game, we said is that AI systems should be uncertain about their objective and they should be designed in a way that is uh, sensitive to that uncertainty. This paper was about trying to understand what is a useful way to be uncertain about the objective. And the main idea behind it was that we should be thinking about the environments the system designer had in mind. So we use an example of a 2D robot navigating in the world, and the system designer is thinking about this robot navigating where there's three types of terrain. So there's grass, there's gravel, and there's gold. And you can give your robot an objective, a utility function defined over being in those different types of terrain that incentivizes it to go and get the gold and stay on the dirt where possible, uh, but to take shortcuts across the grass when it's high value. Now, when that robot goes out into the world, there are gonna be new types of terrain and, new and types of terrain the designer didn't anticipate. And what we did in this paper was to build an uncertainty model that allows the robot to determine when it should be uncertain about the quality of its reward function. So how can we figure out when uh, the reward function that a system designer uh, built into an AI, how can we determine when that objective is ill-adapted to the current situation? And you can think of this as a way of trying to build in some mitigation to Goodhart's law. Would you like to take a in second that, to unpack what Goodhart's law is? Sure. So 
Goodhart's law is an old idea in social science that actually goes back to before Goodhart. Um, but it basically said, well, I would say that in economics, there's a general idea of the principal agent problem, which dates back to the 1970s, as I understand it, that basically looks at the problem of specifying incentives for humans. So how should you create contracts? How do you create incentives so that another person, say an employee, uh, helps earn you value. And Goodhart's Law is a, a very nice way of summarizing a lot of those results, which is to say that uh, once a metric becomes an objective, it ceases to become a good metric. So you can have properties of the world which correlate well with what you want, but optimizing for them actually leads to something quite, quite different than what you're looking for. Right. Like if you are optimizing for test scores, then you're not actually going to end up optimizing for intelligence, which is what you wanted in the first place. Exactly. And so even though test scores, when you weren't optimizing for them, were actually a perfectly good measure of intelligence. I mean, not perfectly good, but were a, an informative measure of intelligence. I think that this, you know, Goodhart's law arguably is a pretty bleak perspective. Well, if you take it seriously and you think that we're going to build very powerful systems that are going to be programmed directly through an objective in this manner, Goodhart's law should be pretty problematic. Because any objective that you can imagine programming directly into your system is going to be something correlated with what you really want rather than what you really want. I think you should expect that that will likely be the case. Right. So is it is it just simply like too hard or too unlikely that we're able to like sufficiently specify like what exactly that we want that we'll just end up using some other metrics that if you optimize too hard for them, it ends up messing with a bunch of other things that we care about? Yeah. I mean, I think there are some real questions about what what does it even mean? Well, what are we even trying to accomplish? What should we try to program into systems? I think that is, uh, you know, philosophers have been trying to figure out those types of questions for ages. But for me, as, as someone who takes a, a sort of more empirical slant on these things, you know, I think about the fact that the objectives that we see within our individual lives are so heavily shaped by our environments and which types of signals we respond to and adapt to is heavily adapted itself to the types of environments we find ourselves in. And, you know, we, we just have so many examples of objectives not being the correct thing. I mean, it's effectively all you could have is correlations. You know, the fact that you can wire, the fact that wireheading just is possible is maybe some of the strongest evidence for Goodhart's law being really a, a fundamental property of learning systems and and optimizing systems in the real world. There are certain sorts of agential characteristics and properties which we would sort of like to have in our AI systems, uh, like them being agential. Yeah, like well, so like uh, corrigibility is like a characteristic which you're doing research on and trying to like understand better. Uh, and same mm -hmm. with uh, obedience. And it seems like there's a trade-off here where if a system is like too corrigible or if it's too obedient, uh -huh. then you lose its ability to like really maximize different sorts of objective functions, correct? Yes, exactly. I think that 
I think identifying that trade-off is one of the things I'm sort of most proud of about uh, some of the work we've done so far. So, 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 given like AI safety and like like really big risks that can come about from AI it, in the short to medium and long term, like before we really have AI safety figured out, it, is it really possible for systems to be like too obedient or too corrigible or like too docile? Uh, and how do we sort of navigate this space and, and find sweet spots? Um, so I think it's definitely possible for systems to be too corrigible or too obedient. And it's just that the failure mode for that doesn't seem that bad, right? If you think about this, right. it's, it's kind of like Clippy, right? Like Clippy was sort of... Would you like to unpack what Clippy is human... first? Sure, yeah. So Clippy was an example of... Uh, an assistant that Microsoft created in the 90s. And it was this little paper clip that would show up in Microsoft Word, and it would, uh, well, it, it liked to suggest that you were trying to write a letter a lot and would ask for different ways in which it could help. Um, now, on the one hand, that system was very corrigible and obedient in the sense that it would ask you whether or not you wanted its help all the time. And would, if you said no, it would always go away. But it was super annoying because it would always ask you if you wanted help, right? It would sort of, the the false positive rate was just far too high uh, to the point where the system became really a joke in computer science and AI circles of what you don't want to be doing. And so I think it's, you know, systems can be sort of too obedient or, or too sensitive to human intervention and oversight in the sense that too much of that just reduces the value of the system. Um, right, for sure. But, but, but on one hand, when we're, when we're talking about like existential risks or like uh, even like a paperclip maximizer, uh, then it would seem like, like you said, like the failure mode of just being like kind of too annoying and checking in with us too much is seems like not such a bad thing given like existential risk territory. I think if you're thinking about it in those terms, yes. But I think if you're thinking about it from the standpoint of I want to sell a paperclip maximizer to someone else, um, then it becomes a little less clear. I think especially when the risks of paperclip maximizers are much harder to measure. I'm not saying that it's the right decision, sort of from a global uh, altruistic standpoint, to be making that trade-off. Um, but I think it's also true that just, if we think about the requirements of market dynamics, it is true that AI systems can be too corrigible for the market. Right. And that that is a, a huge failure mode that AI systems run into, and it's one we should expect uh, the producers of AI systems to be responsive to. Right. So given all uh, these different... Oh, is there anything else you wanted to touch on there? Well, I, I, I had another example of systems that are too corrigible. Sure. Which is... Uh, do you remember Microsoft's Tay? No, I do not. Uh, so this is a chatbot that Microsoft released. And they trained it based off of... Twit so it was a tweetbot. And they trained it based on things that were tweeted <laughs> at it. And 
either I, I forget if it was doing nearest neighbors lookup or if it was just doing a sort of neural net that ended up overfitting and like memorizing parts of the training set. Um, but at some point, 4chan realized that the AI system, like that Tay, was very suggestible. Oh, right, right, right. Um, so they basically created a, an army to to radicalize Tay. Right. And they succeeded. Yeah, I remember this. Um, and I think you could also think of that as being the other axis of uh, like, too corrigible or too responsive to human input. Right. So the, the first axis I was talking about is sort of the, the failures of being too corrigible from an economic standpoint. Right. Um, but there's also the failures of being uh, too corrigible in a sort of multi-agent mechanism design kind of setting, where I believe that those types of properties in a system also open them up to more misuse. You're, if we think of AI, so cooperative inverse reinforcement learning and the models we've been talking about so far exist in, well, exist in what I would call the one robot, one human model of the world. Right. And generally you could think of extensions of this with N humans and M robots. And the variance of what you would have there, I think, lead to different theoretical implications. Um, but if we think of just two humans, so n equals two and one robot, m equals one, um, we'll suppose that one of the humans is the system designer and another one is the user. There is this sort of trade-off between how much control the system designer has over the future behavior of the system and how responsive and corrigible it is to the user in particular. And sort of trading off between those two, I think, is a really interesting ethical question that comes up when you start to think about misuse. So so going forward, and as we're sort of like developing these systems and trying to make them like more fully realized in uh, the world where uh, the number of people will equal uh, something like seven or eight billion, uh, how do we navigate this space where we're trying to sort of hit a sweet spot where uh, uh, it, it's corrigible in the right sorts of ways and to the right degree and right level and to the right people and it is uh, obedient to the right sorts of people and is not like suggestible from the wrong sorts of people? Or does that just like enter a territory of so many like political, social and ethical questions that it's just will take years to, to think about and work on. I mean, I, I think it's closer to the second one. Um, I, I'm sure that I don't know the answers here. We're still like, from my standpoint, I'm still trying to get a good grasp on what is possible in the one robot, one person case. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that when you have, yeah, when you like, like, oh man, that's just it's so, it's so hard to think about that problem because it's just very unclear what's even correct or right, and ethically, you want to be careful about imposing your beliefs and ideals too strongly onto a problem, because um, you are you are sort of shaping that, right? But at the same time, these are these are real challenges that are going to exist. And we, we already see them in, in real life. Uh, 
you know, it's like if we look at the YouTube recommender stuff that was just happening, mm -hmm. you know, arguably that's a misspecified objective. So, so this, I, to, to get a little bit of background here, this is a largely based off a recent New York Times opinion piece uh, that was looking at the recommendation engine for YouTube and pointing out it has a, a bias towards uh, recommending radical uh, content. Um, so either fake news or um, Islamist videos. And if you dig into why that was occurring, you know, that a lot of it is because they're, what are they doing? They're optimizing for engagement. And the process of online radicalization looks super engaging. And now we can think about sort of where does that come up? Well, it's a, you know, that, that issue gets introduced in a whole bunch of places, but a big piece of it is that there is this adversarial dynamic to the world. And there are users generating content in order to be outraging and enraging uh, because they discover that it gets more feedback and more responses. And so you need to design a system that's robust to that strategic property of the world. But at the same time, you can understand why YouTube was very, very hesitant to be taking actions that would look like censorship. Right. And so I guess just coming more off of this idea of like uh, uh, the world having lots of like adversarial agents in it, human beings are like general intelligences who have reached some level of corrigibility and obedience that works kind of well uh, in the world amongst a bunch of other human beings. And that was sort of developed in uh, through evolution. So are there potentially techniques for developing the right sorts of like corrigibility and obedience in machine learning and AI systems through stages of evolution and running like environments like that? I think that's a possibility. One of the, I, I would say, well, I have, a, I have a couple of thoughts related to that. Um, the first one is I, I would actually challenge a little bit of your point of modeling people as general intelligences, mainly in the sense that when we talk about artificial general intelligence, we, we have something in mind, and it's often a shorthand in these discussions for perfectly rational Bayesian optimal actor. Where that means, and just unpack that a little bit. What, what that means is a system that is taking advantage of all of the information that is currently available to it in order to pick actions that optimize expected utility. And when we say perfectly, we mean a system that is doing that as well as possible. That, it's that modeling assumption that I think is, sits at, at the heart of a lot of concerns about existential risk. And I definitely think that's a good model to consider. But there's also the concern that it might be misleading in some ways. And that it might not actually be a good model of people and how they act in general. So one way to, to look at it would be to say that, you know, there's something about the incentive structure around humans and, and in our societies that has developed and adapted that creates the incentives for us to be corrigible and uh, thus a, a good research goal in AI is to figure out what those incentives are and to replicate them in AI systems. Another way to look at it is that people are intelligent 
not necessarily in the ways that economics models us as intelligent, that there are sort of properties of our behavior which are, are desirable properties that don't directly derive from expected utility maximization, or if they do, they, they derive from a very, very diffuse form of expected utility maximization. So this is the, the perspective that says that people on their own are not necessarily the, not necessarily what human evolution is optimizing for. Um, but people are sort of a tool along that way. And, uh, you know, you could make arguments for that based off of, you know, the, I, I think it's an interesting perspective to take. But what I would say is that, you know, in order for societies to work, we have to cooperate. You know, that, that cooperation was a, a crucial evolutionary bottleneck, if you will. And one of the really, really important things that it, it did is it forced us to develop the parent-child strategy relationship equilibrium uh, that we currently live in. And that's a, a process whereby we communicate our values, whereby we train people to think that certain things are okay or not, and where we inculcate certain behaviors uh, in the next generation. And I think it's that process more than anything else that we really, really want in an AI system and in powerful AI systems. Now, the thing is, the, and I guess, well, to continue on that a little more, it's really, really important that that's there. Because if you don't have those uh, types of mental, um, those kind of cognitive abilities to understand causing pain and to just sort of fundamentally decide that that's a bad idea, to have a desire to cooperate, uh, to buy into the different coordinations and normative mechanisms that human society uses. And if you don't have that, then you end up, well, then society just doesn't function. You know, a hunter-gatherer tribe of self-interested sociopaths probably doesn't last for very long. And so what this means is that our ability to coordinate our intelligence and cooperate with it was co-evolved and co-adapted alongside our intelligence. And I think that that evolutionary pressure and bottleneck was really important to getting us to the type of intelligence that we are now. And it's not a pressure that AI is necessarily subjected to. And I think if, I think maybe that is well, one way to sort of phrase the concern, I'd say. So, so when I look to, to evolutionary systems and sort of where the, the incentives for corrigibility and cooperation and interaction come from, it, it's largely about the, the processes whereby people are less like general intelligences in some ways. Sort of evolution allowed us to become smart in some ways and restricted us in others. So based on the imperatives of group coordination and interaction. And I think that a lot of our intelligence in practice is about reasoning about group interaction and what groups think is okay and not. And uh, that's a part of the developmental process that we need to replicate in AI, uh, just as much as uh, spatial reasoning or vision. Cool. Uh, so. So I guess I just want to t touch base on this before we move on. Uh, are, are there certain sorts of like assumptions about like the kinds of agents that humans are uh, and 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 almost, I guess, 
ideas about us as being utility maximizers in some sense that, that, that people you see commonly have, but that are like misconceptions about people and how people operate differently from AI? Well, I think that that's the whole field of behavioral economics um, in a lot of ways. I, I could sort of go up to, to examples of people being irrational. Right. Um, you know, I think there are all of the examples of sort of people being more than just self-interested. Um, there are ways in which we seem to be risk-seeking. That seems like that would be irrational from an individual perspective, uh, but you could argue would maybe rational from a group evolutionary perspective. Um, gener- I mean, things like overeating. You know, I mean, that's not exactly the same type of rationality, but it is an example of us becoming ill-adapted to our environments and showing the extent to which we're not capable of changing or which it may be hard to. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in some ways, you know, one, one story that I tell about AI risk is that, you know, back in the start of the AI field, we were sort of looking around and saying, oh, we want to create something intelligent. And intuitively, we all know what that means, but we need a formal characterization of it. And the formal characterization that we turned to was the basically theories of rationality developed in economics. And although those theories turned out to be, except in some settings, not great descriptors of human behavior, they were quite useful as a guide for building systems that accomplish goals. And I think that part of what we need to do as a field is kind of reassess where we're going and think about whether or not building something like that perfectly rational actor is actually a desirable end goal. In the sense, I mean, there's a sense in which it sort of is. I would like an all-powerful perfectly aligned genie to help me do what I want in life. Um, But you might think that if the odds of getting that wrong are too high, that maybe you would do better with shooting for something that doesn't quite achieve that ultimate goal, uh, but that you can get to with pretty high reliability. This may be one, this may be a setting where, you know, shoot for the moon and if you miss, you'll land among the stars is just a horribly misleading, uh, perspective shoot shoot for the moon and you might get a hellscape universe but if you shoot for the clouds it might end up pretty okay yeah you know we could we could iterate on on the soundbite yeah but but i think something like that is you know may not be that's kind of where i stand on my thinking here so we've talked about like a few different approaches uh, that you've been working on over the past few years what do you view is the main limitations of such approaches currently mostly you're just only thinking about like one machine one human systems or environments Uh, what are the biggest obstacles that 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 you're facing right now in inferring and learning human preferences well i think the first thing is it's just an incredibly difficult inference problem and it's a really difficult inference problem to imagine running at scale with sort of explicit inference mechanisms so Uh, One thing to do is to, you can design a system that explicitly tracks a belief about someone's preferences and then acts in response to that. And those are systems that you could try to prove theory about. They're very hard to build and they can be difficult to get to make work correctly. Um, 
In contrast, you can create systems that have incentives to construct beliefs to accomplish their goals. Um, and it's easier to imagine building those systems and having them work at scale, but it's much, much harder to understand uh, how you would be confident in those systems being well aligned. I think that, you know, what, what are the biggest concerns I have? I mean, we're still very far from any of these approaches being very practical, to be honest. Um, I think this theory is still pretty unfounded. You know, it, there's still a lot of work to go to understand, like, what is the target we're even shooting for? What does an aligned system mean? Like, I, my, my colleagues and I have spent an incredible amount of time trying to just understand what does it mean to be value aligned if you are a suboptimal system? So there, there's one example that uh, that I think about, which is, uh, say you have uh, you're, you're cooperating with an AI system playing chess. You start working with that AI system, and you you discover that you know if you listen to its suggestions, 90% of the time it's actually suggesting the wrong move or a bad move. Yeah. So would you call that system value aligned? No, I would not. I think most people wouldn't. But now what if I told you that that program was actually implemented as a, uh, a search that's using the correct goal test? Um, so it actually turns out that if it's within 10 steps of a winning play, it always finds that for you. Uh, but because of computational limitations, it usually doesn't. Now is the system value aligned? I think it's a little harder to tell here. And what I will find, what I do find is that when I tell people this story and I start off with the search algorithm with the correct goal test, they almost always say that that is value aligned, but stupid. So there's, there's an interesting thing going on here, which is we're not totally sure what the target we're shooting for is. And you can, you can take this thought experiment and push it further. So suppose you're doing that sort of search, uh, but now let's say it's heuristic search that uses the correct goal test, but has an adversarially chosen heuristic function. You know, would that be a value-aligned system? Again, I'm not sure. If the heuristic was adversarially chosen, I'd say probably not. But if the heuristic was just, just happened to be bad, then uh, I'm not sure. Could you potentially unpack yeah. what it means for something to be adversarially chosen? Uh, sure, adversarially chosen in this case just means that there is some intelligent agent uh, selecting uh, that that heuristic function or that that evaluation measurement in a way that's designed to maximally screw you up. Um, so adversarial analysis is a really common technique used in cryptography where we try to think of uh, adversaries selecting inputs for computer systems that will cause them to malfunction. Um, and in this case, what, what this looks like is, is sort of like an adversarial algorithm that, that looks, at least on the surface, like it is trying to help you accomplish your objectives, uh, but is actually trying to fool you. And I'd say that more generally what this thought experiment helps me with is understanding that value alignment is actually a quite tricky and subjective concept. And uh, it's actually quite hard to nail down in practice what it would mean.
What sort of effort do you think needs to happen and from who in order to specify what it really means for a system to be value aligned and to not just have sort of like a soft, squishy idea of what that means, but to have it really formally mapped out so it can be implemented in machine systems? I think need more people working on technical AI safety research. Uh, I, I think to some extent it may always be something that's a little ill-defined and squishy, but generally I think it, it, it goes to the point of needing good people in AI willing to do this kind of squishier, less concrete work that sort of really gets at it. I mean, I think value alignment is, is going to be something that's a little bit more like I know it when I see it. And as a field, we need to be moving towards uh, a goal of AI systems where alignment is the end goal, whatever that means. Like, I'd, I'd like to move away from artificial intelligence, where we think of intelligence as a, an ability to solve puzzles, to artificial aligning agents, where the goal is to build systems that are actually accomplishing goals on your behalf. And I think the types of behaviors and strategies uh, that arise from taking that perspective are qualitatively quite different from the strategies of pure puzzle solving on a well-specified objective. So all this work we've been discussing is largely at a theoretic and meta level. At this point, is this the main sort of research that we should be doing, or is there any space for research into what specifically might be implementable today? I don't think that's the only work that needs to be done. Uh, for me, I think it's a really important type of work that I think is that I'd like to see more of. I, I think a lot of important work is about understanding how to build these systems in practice and, and to think hard about designing AI systems with meaningful human oversight. I, I'm a big believer in the approach that says that, well, I'm a big believer in the idea that AI safety uh, the distinction between short-term and long-term issues is is not really that large and that there are synergies between the research problems that go both directions. So I believe that uh, on the one hand, looking at short-term safety issues, uh, which includes, you know, Things like Uber's car just killed someone, it includes the YouTube recommendation engine, includes issues like fake news and information filtering. I believe that all of those things are related to and give us our best window into uh, the types of concerns and issues that may come up with advanced AI. And at the same time, and this is a point that I think uh, people concerned about X risk do themselves a disservice on by not focusing here is that actually doing theory about advanced AI systems and about in particular systems where it's not possible to um, what I would call unilaterally intervene. So systems that aren't necessarily, that aren't corrigible by default. I think that that actually gives us a lot of idea of, of how to build systems now that are just merely hard to, to intervene with or oversee. So if you're thinking about issues of, of monitoring and oversight and how do you actually get a system that can appropriately evaluate when it should go to a person uh, because its objectives are not properly specified or may not be relevant to the situation, 
you know, I, I think YouTube would have been in a much better, would be in a much better place today if they had a robust system for doing that for their recommendation engine. In a lot of ways, the concerns about X risk represent an extreme set of assumptions for getting AI right now. And so I think I'm also just trying to get a better sense of what the system looks like and how it would be functioning on a day-to-day. What is the sort of data that it is taking in in order to, to, to capture, learn, and infer specific human preferences and values? And just trying to understand better whether or not it can model whole moral views and ethical systems of other agents, or if it's just sort of capturing little specific bits and pieces. So I think my my ideal would be to, as a system designer, build in as little as possible about my uh, sort of moral beliefs. Um, and I think that ideally the process would look something, well, one process that I could see and imagine doing right would be to just directly go after trying to replicate the something about the moral imprinting process that people have with their children. So you'd either have, you'd have someone who's like a, a guardian or, or is responsible for, for an AI system's decision, and, and we build systems to try to align with one individual and then um, try to adopt and, and extend and push forward the beliefs and preferences of that individual. I think that's sort of one concrete version that I could see. I think building explicit, I think a lot of the, a lot of the place where I see things maybe a little bit different than, than some people is that I think the, the main ethical questions we're going to be stuck with and the ones that we really need to get right are sort of the mundane ones, sort of the things that most people agree on and, and think are just sort of like, obviously that's not okay. Sort of kind of like mundane ethics and morals rather than kind of the, more esoteric or fancier kind of population ethics questions that can arise. I feel a lot more confident about the ability to build good AI systems if we get that part right. And I feel like we've got a better shot at getting that part right because it's, there's, a, there's a clearer target to shoot for. Um, so now what kinds of data would you be looking at? So in that case, it would be data from interaction with a couple select individuals um, but ideally, you'd want sort of as much data as you can. What I think you really want to be careful of here is how much assumptions do you make about the procedure that's generating your data? So what I mean by that is whenever you learn from data, you have to make some assumption about how that data relates to the right thing to do, where right is with like a capital R in this case. And... The more assumptions you make there, the more your system will be able to learn about values and preferences, and the quicker it will be able to learn about values and preferences. But the more assumptions and structure you make there, the more likely you are to get something wrong that your system won't be able to recover from. So again, we sort of see this trade-off come up of a challenge between the a discrepancy between the amount of uncertainty that you need in the system uh, in order to be able to adapt to the right person and figure out the correct preferences and morals against uh, sort of the efficiency with which you can figure that out. Um, but I guess it, in, in saying this, it, it feels a little bit like I'm uh, 
rambling and unsure about what the answer looks like. And uh, I hope that that comes across because I'm really not sure. Beyond the, the rough structure of data generated from people, uh, interpreted in the in a way that involves sort of the, le the fewest prior conceptions about what people want and what preferences people have that we can get away with is what I would shoot for. But I don't really know what that would look like in practice. Right. So it seems here that it's just sort of encroaching on a bunch of very difficult sort of like social, political, and ethical issues involving like persons and data which will be selected for preference aggregation like how many people are included in, in, in developing sort of like the reward function and utility function of the AI system. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I guess we'd have to be considering like culturally sensitive systems where systems operating in different cultures and contexts are going to be needed to be trained on different sets of data. And I guess there also would be like questions and ethics about whether or not we'll even want systems to be training off of certain cultures' data. Yeah, so I would actually say that a good value, like I, I wouldn't necessarily even think of it as training off of different data. Like one of the core questions in artificial intelligence is identifying the relevant community that you are in and building a normative understanding of that community. So I, I, I want to push back a little bit and, and move you away from the perspective of we collect data about a culture and we figure out the values of that culture, and then we build our system to be value aligned with that culture. And more think about the actual AI product is the process whereby we determine, elicit, and respond to the normative values of the multiple overlapping communities that you find yourself in. And, and that that process is ongoing, it's holistic, it's overlapping, and it's messy. And, and I think it, we'd like to to the extent that I, I think it's possible, I'd like to not have a couple people sitting around in a room deciding what the right values are. But much more, I think a system should be holistically designed with value alignment at multiple scales as a sort of core property of, of AI. Um, and I think that that's actually a fundamental property of human intelligence. You behave differently based on the different people around. And you're very, very sensitive to that. There are certain things that are okay at work that are not okay at home, uh, that are okay on vacation, that are okay around kids, that are not. Um, and figuring out what those things are and adapting yourself to them is sort of the fundamental intelligent skill needed to interact in modern life. Otherwise, you just get shunned. So it seems to me that uh, in the context of like a really like holistic, messy kind of ongoing value alignment procedure will be aligning AI systems, ethics and, and morals and moral systems and, and behavior with that of uh, a variety of uh, cultures and persons and, and, and just interactions in the 21st century. And when we reflect upon uh, the humans of the past, we can see in various ways that they are like just moral monsters. Uh, we have issues with slavery, and today we have issues with factory farming and, and voting rights and tons of other things in history. How should we view and think about aligning powerful systems, uh, ethics, and goals with um, like current human morality and preferences and, and the risk of amplifying like current things which are immoral in 
in present day life? This is the idea of mistakenly locking in the wrong values in some sense. I think it is something we should be concerned about. Less from the, the standpoint of entire, well, no, I think yes, from the standpoint of entire cultures getting things wrong. But again, I think if we, if we don't think of there being a sort of monolithic society that has a single value set, you know, these problems just are, are fundamental issues. You know, there's your what your local community thinks is okay versus what other local communities think are okay. And a lot of our society and a lot of our political structure is about how to handle those clashes between value systems. Um, and so my, my ideal for AI systems is that they should become a part of that normative process and maybe not participate in them as people, but also, you know, I think this, if we think of value alignment as a consistent, ongoing, messy process, there is, I think maybe like that perspective lends itself less towards locking in values and sticking with them. There's sort of one frame you can look at the problem, which is we determine what's right and what's wrong, and we program our system to do that. And then there's another one, which is we program our system to be sensitive to what people think is right or wrong. And I think that's more the direction that I think of value alignment in. And then... I, what I think the final part of what you're you're getting at here is that the system actually will feed back into people. So what AI systems show us will shape what we think is okay and and vice versa. And that's something that I am quite frankly not sure how to handle. I don't know how you predict how you're going to influence what someone wants and what they will perceive they want and how to do that, I guess, correctly. Um, all I can say is that we do have a human notion of what is acceptable manipulation. Um, and we do have a human notion of allowing someone to figure out for themselves what they think is right and not, and refraining from biasing them too far. So to some extent, if you're able to value align with communities in a good, ongoing, holistic manner, that should also give you some some ways to choose and understand what types of manipulations you may be doing that are okay or not. I'll also say that I think that this, this perspective has a very kind of mundane analogy when you think of the feedback cycle between uh, recommendation engines and regular people. You know, those, those systems don't model the effect, well, they don't explicitly model the fact that they're changing the structure of what people want and what they'll want in the future. That's probably not the best analogy in the world. I guess what I'm saying is that it's hard to plan for how you're going to influence someone's desires in the future. It's not clear to me what's right or what's wrong. What's true is that we as humans have a lot of norms about what types of manipulation are okay and are not. And you might hope that uh, appropriately doing value alignment in that way um, might help get to an answer here. I'm just trying to get a better sense here. So like when I'm thinking about the role that like ethics and, and intelligence plays here, I sort of view intelligence as a means of like modeling the world and achieving goals and ethics as uh, the end towards which intelligence is sort of aimed here. 
Now, I, I'm curious, like in terms of like behavior modeling, uh, where in, inverse reinforcement learning agents are modeling, I guess, the behavior of uh, like human agents and also predicting the sorts of behaviors that they'd be taking uh, like in the future or in the situation in which the inverse reinforcement learning agent finds itself. I'm curious to know like where meta ethics and moral epistemology fits in, where um, inverse reinforcement learning agents are finding themselves in novel ethical situations uh, and and what their ability to handle those novel ethical situations are like. And when they're handling those situations, how much does it look like them performing uh, some sort of like normative and meta-ethical calculus based on a kind of moral epistemology that they have? Or how much does it look like they're using some other sort of like behavioral predictive system where they're like modeling humans? The answer to that question is not clear. Um, so what does it actually mean to make decisions based on an ethical framework or a meta-ethical framework? I guess we could start there. You and I know what that means, but our definition is encumbered by the fact that it's it's pretty human-centric. Like we could talk about it in terms of, well, I, I, I weighed this option, I looked at that possibility, and we don't even really mean the sort of literal sense of weighed in like it actually counted up and constructed actual numbers and multiplied them together in our heads. What these are is they're actually references to complex thought patterns that we're going through. And so verifying whether or not those thought patterns are going on in an AI system is you can also talk about the difference between sort of the, the process of making a decision and the, the substance of it. So when an inverse reinforcement learning agent is going out into the world, the policy it's following is constructed to try to optimize a set of inferred preferences. But does that mean that the policy you're outputting is making meta-ethical characterizations? Well, at the moment, almost certainly not, right? Because the systems we build are just not capable of that type of cognitive reasoning. But I think the bigger question is, do you care? And to some extent, you probably do. I mean, I'd, I'd um, care if the I'd care if like I had some like very deep disagreements with the sorts of meta ethics that led to the preferences that were onloaded to the machine and also if the machine were in like such a new novel ethical situation that was unlike anything human beings had faced that it just required some sort of meta ethical reasoning to deal with. Yes. I, I mean I think you definitely want it to to take decisions that you you would agree with, um, or at least that you you could be sort of non-maliciously convinced to agree with. But practically, there isn't a place in the theory where that sort of shows up. And it's not clear that what you're, you're saying is, is that different from value alignment in particular. And if I were to try to, to refine the point about meta-ethics, what, what it sounds to me like you're getting at is an inductive bias that you're looking for in AI systems. Uh, and arguably, ethics is about an argument of what inductive bias should we have as humans. But I don't think that that's a first-order property in value alignment systems necessarily or in uh, preference-based learning systems in particular. Right. Um, I would think that sort of that kind of meta-ethics 
I think comes in from value aligning to someone that has these sort of sophisticated ethical ideas. You know, I, I don't know where your thoughts about metaethics came from, um, but you know, at least indirectly, we could probably trace them down to the values that your parents inculcated in you as a child. You know, that's that's how we built metaethics into your head, if we want to think of you as being an AGI. And I think that for AI systems, you know, that's actually that's the same way that I would see it being in there. So, like, I don't believe the brain has circuits dedicated to metaethics. I think that exists in software, and in particular, is something that's being programmed into humans from their observational data more so than uh, from the uh, structures that are, are built into us as a fundamental part of our intelligence or value alignment. We've also talked a bit about, about how you know, there's, uh, human beings are potentially not fully rational agents. Um, mm -hmm. And so with inverse reinforcement learning, this sort of leaves open the question as to whether or not AI systems are actually capturing what the human being actually prefers, or if there are some sorts of like limitations in um, the human's observed or chosen behavior or explicitly told preferences, like limits in that ability to convey what we actually most deeply value or would value mm -hmm. given more information. Um, and so these uh, inverse reinforcement learning systems may not be learning what we actually value or what we think we should value. How can AI systems sort of assist in this evolution of human morality and preferences whereby we're actually like conveying what we actually value and what we would value given more information? Well, there are sort of two things that I heard in that question. So, so one is how do you just sort of mathematically account for the fact that people are irrational and that that is a property of the source of your data. And so inverse reinforcement learning at face value uh, doesn't, allow us to, to model that appropriately. Um, and so it may lead us to make the wrong inferences. And I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, and it's probably the main one that I think about now as a technical problem, um, is understanding what are good ways to, to model how people might or might not be rational and building systems that can uh, sort of appropriately interact with that sort of complex data source. So one recent thing that I've been thinking about is what happens uh, if people, rather than knowing their objective, what they're trying to accomplish, uh, are figuring it out over time. So this is a model where the person is uh, a learning agent that discovers how they like states when they enter them, rather than uh, sort of thinking of the person as an agent that already knows what they want and is just planning to accomplish that. And I think these types of assumptions that try to build a sort of paint a very, very broad picture of the space of things that people are doing can help us in that vein. When someone's learning, it's actually interesting that you can actually end up helping them. Uh, you end up with a, a class of strategies that looks like uh, you sort of in it breaks down into three phases. 
You have initial exploration phase where you help the learning agent get a better picture of the world and the dynamics and its associated rewards. Uh, and then you have an observation phase where you observe how that agent now takes advantage of the information that it's got. And then there's an exploitation or extrapolation phase uh, where you try to implement the optimal policy given the information you've seen so far. And so I think sort of moving towards more complex models that are, are sort of a more, have a more realistic setting and richer set of assumptions behind them is uh, important. The other thing you talked about was about helping people discover their morality and sort of learn more what's okay and what's not. And there I'm afraid I don't have too much interesting to say. Um, in the sense that I, I believe it's an important question, but I just don't feel that I have many answers there. So practically, I'm not sure. Like, if you have someone who's learning their preferences over time, is that different than humans refining their moral theories? I don't know. Uh, they, you could make mathematical uh, modeling choices so that they are, um, but I'm not sure if that really gets at what you're trying to um, point towards. I'm sorry that I don't have anything more interesting to say on that front, uh, other than I think it's important and I would you know, love to talk to more people who are spending their days thinking about that question, because I think it really does deserve that kind of intellectual effort. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like we kind of need some more like uh, AI moral psychologists to help us think about yeah, these sorts of things. And, and in particular, when we're talking about sort of philosophy around value alignment and the ethics of value alignment, I think a really important question is, is what are the ethics of developing value alignment systems? So a lot of times people talk about AI ethics from the standpoint of, uh, for lack of a better example, the trolley problem. And, and the way that they think about it is who should the car kill? There is a correct answer, uh, or maybe not a correct answer, but there are answers that we could think of as more or less bad. And an AI... Uh, you know, which, which one of those options should the AI select? And that's not unimportant. Um, but it's not the ethical question that an AI system designer is faced with. In my mind, if you're designing a self-driving car, the relevant questions you should be asking are two things. One, what do I think is an okay way to respond to different situations. Two, how is my system going to be understanding the preferences of the people involved in those situations? And then three, how should I design my system in light of those two facts? So I have my own preferences about what I would like my system to do. There are, I have an ethical responsibility, I would say, to make sure that my system is adapting to the preferences of its users to the extent that it can. Uh, but I also wonder to what extent, uh, how should you handle things when there are conflicts between those two value sets? Right. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, you're building a robot, it's going to go and uh, live with a, uncontacted 
human tribe, um, you know, should it respect the local cultural traditions and customs? So you Probably. That would be respecting the values of the users. But then let's say that that tribe does like something that we would consider to be gross, like pedophilia. Um, you know, is my system required to participate wholesale in that value system? Um, and where's the line that we would need to draw between impose, you know, sort of unfairly imposing my values on system users and uh, being able to make sure that the technology that I build isn't used for purposes that I would deem reprehensible uh, or gross. Maybe we should just uh, put a, put a dial in each of the autonomous cars that lets the user set it to like deontology mode or utilitarianism mode as it's racing down the highway. Uh, but yeah, I think this is sort of the uh, I guess an important like role where I just think that like metaethics is super important and and not sure if uh, this is necessarily the case, but like if fully autonomous systems are sort of going to play a role where. Uh, they're resolving these ethical dilemmas for us, which I guess at some point eventually, if they're going to be like really actually autonomous and help to make the world a much better place, seems kind of necessary. So I guess this kind of like feeds into my next question where I'm wondering like where we probably both have different assumptions about this, but what the role of inverse reinforcement learning is ultimately like, is it just to allow AI systems to evolve alongside us and to match our current ethics or is it to like allow the systems to ultimately like surpass us and move far beyond us into the deep future um, inverse reinforcement learning i think is much more about the first than the second um i think it can be a part of how you get to the second and how you improve um but for me when i think about these problems technically i try to think about matching human morality as the goal um Except for I the factory farm which stuff. Well, I, I mean, if you had a choice between like, you know, thinks that eradicating all humans is okay and against factory farming versus neutral about factory farming and thinks that eradicating all humans aren't okay, uh, which would you pick? I mean, I, I guess there, yeah. with your audience, that there may be some people that would, would choose the uh, saving the animals answer. Um, but my point is that I think it's so hard for me, like technically, I think it's very hard to imagine getting these normative aspects of, of human societies and interaction, right? I think just hoping to participate in that process in a way that is, is analogous to how people, to how people do normally is a good step. I think we probably, to the extent that we can should probably not have AI systems trying to figure out if it's okay to do factory farming. I think to the extent that we can, you know, I, I think that's a, it's so hard to understand what it means to even match human morality or participate in it that for me, the concept of surpassing it feels very, very challenging and fraught. Um, and I would worry as a general concern that as a system designer who doesn't necessarily represent the views and interests of everyone, um, that by programming in surpassing humanity or surpassing human preferences or morals, what I'm actually doing is just programming in my morals and ethical beliefs. Yeah. So, I mean, I, there, there seems to be this strange issue here where uh, it seems like 
if we get AGI and like recursive self-improvement is a thing that really takes it off so that we have a system who has potentially succeeded in its inverse reinforcement learning, but far surpassed like human beings in its general intelligence. So we have kind of like a super intelligence that's matching like human morality. Um, it just seems kind of like a funny situation where we'd really have to pull the brakes. And I guess like as, as William McCaskill mentions, have like a really, really long deliberation about, about ethics and moral epistemology and, and value. Uh, how do you view that? I think that's right. I mean, I think there are some real questions about who that conversate, who should be involved in that conversation. Um, for instance, I, I actually think that it's, well, one thing I'd say is that you should recognize that there's a difference between having the same morality and having the same data. So one way to think about it is that people who are against factory farming have a different morality than the rest of people. Another one is that they actually just have exposure to the information that allows their morality to uh, come to a better answer, right? There's this, this confusion you can make between the objective that someone has or, and the data that they've seen so far. So I think you know, one, one point would be to, to think that you know, a system that has current human morality but access to a vast, vast wealth of information may actually do much better than you might think. Right. Um, you know, I think we should leave that open as a possibility. Uh, but then I, I think, you know, and for me, this is less about morality in particular and more just about like power concentration and how much influence you have over the world. I mean, if we imagined that there was something like, a, you know, there's a very powerful AI system that was controlled by a small number of people. Yeah. You better think freaking hard before you tell that system what to do. Um, and you know, that is, that's related to questions about ethical ramifications on sort of meta ethics and generalization and, and what we actually truly value as humans. Um, but it's also super true for all of the more mundane things in the day to day as well. Did that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Uh, and I'm becoming increasingly mindful of your time here. So I just wanted to hit a few more questions, if that's okay, before I let you go. Please, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm wondering, would you like to or do you have any thoughts on how uh, coherent extrapolated volition fits into this conversation and your views on it? What I'd say is I think coherent extrapolated volition is is an interesting idea and goal. Where it is defined as... Where, where it's defined as a, a method of preference aggregation. Um, personally, I'm a little wary of preference aggregation approaches. Well, I'm, I'm wary of imposing your morals on someone indirectly via um, choosing the method of preference aggregation that we're going to use. Right, but, I would, it, 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 but it seems like at some point so, we have to make some sort of meta-ethical decision or else like, we'll just forever well, be do, lost. Do and... we have to? Well, so, some so agent my, does. My, so <laughs> let me, well, does one agent have to? Did one agent decide on the ways that we were going to do preference aggregation as a society? No, it sort um, of naturally evolved out of... It just sort of naturally evolved via a a coordination and argumentative process. Right. And so for me, my answer to 
Like if you if you forced me to to specify something about how we're going to do value aggregation, uh, like you know if I was controlling the values for an AGI system, um, I would try to say as little as possible about the way that we're going to aggregate values because I think we don't actually understand that process much in humans. Right, that's fair. And instead, I would opt for a heuristic of to the extent that we can. Um, devote equal optimization effort towards every individual and allow that uh, parliament, if you will, to, to determine the way that value should be aggregated. Um, and this doesn't necessarily mean having an explicit value aggregation mechanism that gets set in stone. Uh, this could be a, an argumentative process mediated by artificial agents arguing on your behalf. Um, this could be a like futuristic AI-enabled version of the court system, um, like an ecosystem of of preferences and values, kind of in conversation. Exactly. So we've talked a little bit about sort of like the deep future here now, with like where we're reaching around, like potentially like AGI or artificial superintelligence. Uh, after sort of, I guess, uh, inverse reinforcement learning is like potentially solved. Uh, is there anything that you view that that, that that comes after inverse reinforcement learning in these techniques? Yeah, I mean, I, I think inverse reinforcement learning is certainly not the be-all, end-all. I think what it is is it's one of the earliest examples in AI of trying to uh, really sort of look at preference elicitation and modeling preferences and learning preferences. Um, you know, I mean, it existed in a whole bunch of, you know, sort of economists have been thinking about this for a while already. Um, but basically, yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to be said about how you, you model uh, data and how you learn about preferences and goals. I think inverse reinforcement learning is basically the first attempt to get at that, but it's very far from the end. Um, and I would say the... The biggest thing in how I view things that is maybe different from your standard reinforcement learning, inverse reinforcement learning perspective, is that um, I focus a lot on how do you act given what you've learned from inverse reinforcement learning. So, so inverse reinforcement learning is a pure inference problem. It's just figure out what someone wants. Uh, and I ground that out in all of my research in take actions to help someone, which introduces a new set of concerns and questions. Great. Uh, so it looks like we're about at the end of the hour here. Um, so I guess just if, if anyone here is interested in, in working on this technical portion of the AI alignment problem, uh, what do you suggest they study or how do you view that it's best for them to get involved, especially if they want to work on like inverse reinforcement learning and, and, and like inferring human preferences? So I think the, if you're an interested person and you want to get into technical safety work, well, the first thing you should do is probably read Jan Leike's uh, recent write-up in 80,000 Hours. Um, but generally what I would say is try to get involved in AI research flat. Don't focus as much on getting into AI safety research. Um, and just generally focus more on acquiring the skills that will support you in doing good AI research. So get a strong math background get a research advisor who will advise you on doing research projects and help uh, 
teach you the process of submitting papers and figuring out what the AI research community is going to be interested in. Um, in my experience, one of the biggest pitfalls that early researchers make is focusing too much on what they're researching rather than thinking about who they're researching with and how they're going to learn the skills that will support doing research in the future. Uh, I think that most people don't appreciate how transferable research skills are. To the extent that you can try to do research on technical AI safety, but more so work on technical AI. And if you're interested in safety, the safety connections will be there. And you may see how a new area of AI actually relates to it, supports it, um, or you may find places of new risk and be in a good position to try to mitigate that and take steps to alleviate those harms. Wonderful. Well, yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Dylan. It's really been a pleasure and it's been super interesting. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. I love the chance to have these types of discussions. Great. Thanks so and much. And until next time. Until next time. Thanks a blast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, or share it on your preferred social media platform. We'll be back soon with another episode in this new AI alignment series.